daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to the panel discussion of World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Chinese Premier Li Qiang has called on China and Europe to rise above differences and find creative solutions in order to overcome global challenges. The Chinese Premier made the remark while attending a summit for a new global financial pact in Paris on Friday. Li pledged that China would continue to take steps to support its fellow developing countries, including getting engaged in debt relief efforts in keeping with the principle of fair burden sharing. Now, this particular two-day summit hosted by French President Emmanuel Macron has aimed to find financial solutions to some of the interconnected global challenges like、uh, tackling poverty and climate change. Addressing the meeting, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the global financial system was failing to rise to modern challenges, and now,、uh, quote, perpetuates and even worsening inequality. Unquote. The UN chief is, of course, not the only political leader who holds this view. In fact, it is precisely a widespread complaint about the existing global financial system that paved the way for the holding of this particular meeting in Paris. So, what kind of financial architecture do we need for the world today? Can the global North and global South reach consensus in this regard? These questions and much more in this edition of the program. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Lauren Johnston, associate professor with the China Study Center, University of Sydney. Hello. Hello, Ding. Also joining us is Dr. Michael Powers, Zurich Insurance Group Professor of Risk and Finance with Tsinghua University. Welcome back. Thank you, Ding Han. And finally, we have Dr. Jia Daojong, Professor of International Political Economy with Peking University. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Jia. Nice to be here. Okay, so Lauren, to start with you, let's begin by talking about this climate change issue. It is a long-standing issue that you know funding for these、uh, low-income countries' green transition is far from enough. That's the consensus among the、uh, policymakers and policy advisors.、Uh, for for instance, developed countries made a pledge back in 2009 to provide 100 billion U.S. dollars a year in climate finance to developing countries by 2020. The reality is, according to the OECD, by 2020, the total amount was more than 15 million,、uh, 15 billion rather dollars short. So, in your understanding, what's the cause of this issue? Do you think this issue is pointing to some of the flaws、uh, within the existing international financial architecture? Thanks for the question, Ding Hong. Um, I think there's a couple of oh, there's many many complexities with any development finance of of big issues, and the climate change one intersects first of all the traditional challenge of funding large infrastructure problems or, or large infrastructure projects. Sorry, so energy plants, hydro plants,、um, you know, huge electricity networks. These are enormous, enormous projects, which are very difficult to achieve, even when you're happy to produce as much carbon dioxide as would be the outcome for the easiest scenario. So, I think that the green energy transition adds another layer of complexity to what was already a complex task, and then. There's some different political agendas and political viewpoints around the need for a green energy transition, which then adds a political economy layer.、Um, perhaps the failure of the G20 and OECD to deliver some of that funding related to that complexity, and also to recent, you know, kind of economic slowdowns and, and shutdowns. 
So, but I, I, they have been scaling up funding, but it's just not easy to deliver either. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Professor Jia, we understand the 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 uh, this particular meeting in Paris has actually stemmed from an action plan called Bridge Town Initiative. This initiative was launched by Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley during last year's. COP27 climate change negotiations, and one focus of this initiative is really about pushing for reform of multilateral development banks, or MDBs, in short.、Uh, in your observation, Professor, what kind of、um, reforms should be、um, should be pursued in order to, you know, enable or empower these MDBs to better finance the green development needs across the world today? Well, I think earlier Dr. Johnston tried to、uh, put the green finance issue as a matter of development financing, meaning loans by the better off countries to、mm-hmm. the so-called global south borrowers. I think she tried to put it in a very positive light,、uh, or let's say, if、uh, I can be straightforward, politically correct. But then, climate change—the the, the 100 billion、uh, number you mentioned was、mm-hmm. never really cast in stone. Actually, there was no document, there was no treaty. It was more a appeal or some kind of verbalized、uh, promise of sorts. Okay. Point one. Point two is that uh, uh, any project can be. Termed climate friendly or climate negative, unfriendly. It's just a matter of degree. And so related to that, I was a little,、uh, you know, it's politically acceptable at this point of time for climate to be highlighted in a discussion about forming、uh, the global financial structure that places has a lot of burden on the development. A low-income economy, because without a climate, many of the OECD or Paris Club countries, their societies wouldn't want to even talk about it. Why? Because you know there has been this issue of、uh, development, development, development financing is long, and a lot of times they blame on the borrowers for not having spent the money、uh, responsibly. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, Professor Powers, let me turn to you. Having、uh, listened to the analysis by、uh, Dr. Johnson and Professor Zhao, what is your thought? I, I think you've raised、um, two very important、um, issues. One, one has to do with、um, the, the the failure of the、um, wealthier developed nations. To follow through on on a commitment、um, which they made back in 2009, and, and which Professor Jaw、uh, is correct that that this was never、um, stated in very precise terms, and I, I think that's the the major problem that、uh, the statement says that that the nations will will commit 100 billion U.S. dollars annually, but it doesn't give any、um, specific breakdown of who will pay what. It also doesn't、uh, provide uh, specific um, ways of evaluating contributions、um, in this international financial structure, so that、um, some countries may count one type of、uh, commitment or subsidy or investment、um, a- as something that 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 is part of that 100 billion, and others may not. And, and I think that that lack of clarity is a big part of the problem. Uh, then, with re- regard to the、um, the multilateral development banks themselves and 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 the financial architecture itself,、uh, I, I think that there are、um, problems、um, because of the stress that is being、um, applied by this major issue of、um, global climate change and the need for the、um, the developing countries, the ones that that don't have the funds. Um, to to take the step the adaptation steps that are necessary、um, to to obtain that 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 type of funding in order to move ahead. I don't think that organizations such as the World Bank and the IMF are really、um, prepared for for that level of funding. And I I do think that there need to be some changes made 
in, in order to 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 succeed with this um, agenda. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So this lack of clarity regarding um, the the support of financial resources from the wealthy countries to the low income countries that's that's a big issue. But uh, Dr. Lauren Johnston, what about say let's uh, talking about this issue from another lens because because in in some high income economies like America and the European nations, more than eighty percent of green investment is actually uh, financed by the private sector. By comparison, in those emerging and developing countries, the private sector share is only fourteen percent. Also, for a similar solar farm, for example, the average interest rate cost in emerging economies could be over ten percent. More specifically, the figure I have read about is ten point four percent, against only four percent in the case of the European Union countries. So, in your understanding, what do you think have really led to these?、Um, Disparities between high-income countries and emerging economies, and is there anything that can be done to narrow these gaps? Thanks again for another good question, Ding Hung.、Um, I will go back. I think I, I think a lot of these problems can be linked to some aspects of standard development problems. So. One reason, for example, the private sector plays a greater role in green investment in high-income countries, is not only that the private sector is more developed, but that they have a greater guarantee of getting a return. So when they invest in solar or whatever it is, whatever type of wind power, whatever, they can be fairly assured that their customers will pay. If their customers don't pay, They can pursue some legal avenues, you know. Even in a country as as advanced as South Africa in terms of its energy sector,、hmm. that has proven a big problem. Let alone, like I, I myself lived in Sierra Leone previously, not long after the war. So, you know, some fifteen or so years ago now, and also in Guyana in the Caribbean for a year, working on how to implement these development projects. And in Sierra Leone, we we didn't have electricity in the ministry. Perhaps half the time, two at least two and a half days a week, maybe zero electricity in the ministry. And then, in in for six months, I lived in a house, and to actually is not a hotel, a private home, and to pay the electricity bill for the times when the electricity worked. Was just so complex to even kind of get there, find the right bill, be charged the right amount, and same in Guyana, even though it was richer. So, I think energy markets are incredibly complex, even in a place like Switzerland. Let alone when you just can't be sure the copper will stay on the wire or whatever. And so. Again, that these are development hurdles that need to be overcome, but it just it, it says that this green development push can't be separated entirely from some of the standard challenges in the sense of, you know, making making these changes and making these developments happen. Okay, so in other words, it is、um... the same reason why capital is also more expensive, why、mm. the interest rate is more expensive because the risk is higher. Which therefore implies you do need the multilateral finance. You do need those implicit development subsidies, but then they can only be realised when they can actually be realised, which you know isn't always easy to implement, even where the money is there. Okay, so Professor Jia, would you agree in this point that、uh, the risks is、uh, largely associated with? Say the political situation or the social norm or whatever the the、uh, the, the macro economic projection of this particular country. Well, these projections are,、mm-hmm. you know, projections. Yeah.、Uh, for all these developing countries, and sometimes people would say, you know, folks、mm-hmm. in China don't have a lot to comment or、uh, offer. 
you have the what's called opacity of uh, statistics. And, uh, you know, many countries, it is true in the global south, they don't even have, uh, let's say, well, a good system of keeping track of either micro or macro economy. And for that matter, uh, the appropriate level of pricing for such essential utilities as electricity supply or water often falls into the hand of the so-called free market and the government oversight. If we think about you know uh, electricity as a basic infrastructure, as an essential com- component for dealing with growth, for dealing with um, income inequality, and the worst still, let's say, it returning to the, back to what brought us to the discussion today. Mm. For example, with Zambia, how much debt does it really owe? Uh, You ask three, five, ten different institutions, each has its own number, each Mm. goes by its own criteria. And the Zambians themselves probably don't really have a version that can convince the rest. Or like many other countries, I would think Zambia is also adopting a version that's calculated by the World Bank or the IMF, and uh, 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 around the uh, Paris conference uh, mm. on the finance impact, there are criticisms too about assessment of debt sustainability of Zambia and other countries. It's a mess, and mm. uh, we have to be to deal with this. The uh, statistics itself is politics. Yeah. So yeah. So that's that's a very important issue on the technical front. So Professor Jia, what about this? Uh, for example, in developed countries, we're seeing measures like the Inflation Reduction Act in the case of the United States and a green hydrogen auction in the case of the EU. Uh, essentially, these measures seem to be uh, a race about um, you know a race about. Uh, subsidizing renewable energy industries and India's um, power minister has recently criticized these U.S. and European measures saying they would undermine clean energy production in emerging economies including India. Do you think um, this minister have a point? Well, again, it's a matter of methodology because of the role the U.S. dollar the central role the U.S. dollar plays in the world economy in trade, you can say, well, you know, when the U.S. is in inflation or the U.S. takes certain domestic economic policies, it affects the cost of borrowing or the cost of financing of debt or the cost of servicing trade, normal trade, for economies including India. Yes, that is a connection. But on the other hand, I wouldn't think you know, if you look at it at the project level, industry level per se, pursuit of green hydrogen or renewable energy in the U.S. would have a direct relationship with that in India, because after all, it's only the trade is a portion of energy. We are talk, really talking about uh, crude oil and natural gas mm. uh, is globally uh, uh, has a global price. Much of the energy is priced at the consumption level, is priced locally in mm. the government. In the, and in the case of India, as in many other countries, I would think uh, outside observers would have similar comments about Indian policies that may be viewed as a distortion of the energy market. <laughs> it's not a straightforward picture. Okay. So, Professor Michael Powers, um, in terms of exploring new sources of green financing, some industry associations and non-governmental organizations have already put forward a number of ideas, including uh, levying some uh, specific taxes on fossil fuel companies, taxing the financial transaction that happened within the capital markets, or taxing the maritime shipping. Uh, which I guess is also a big source of um, carbon emissions to to the planet we are living in. Professor Powers, do you think these proposals, these ideas, 
can come into uh, you know maturity or fruition in the foreseeable future? I, I think that it will be very difficult. I, I don't think that it's a bad idea. I mean, actually, what you're talking about is um, a transition um, to some sort of dedicated funding. And dedicated funding um, has pluses and minuses. Um, the, the benefit is that one doesn't have to keep, um, you know, keep making the, the argument again and again that the the that funds are necessary and that, you know, people, governments have to dip into their pockets and, and you, you have to do it again this year and next year and so forth. Uh, this would address some of the clarity issues, um, the, the, the ambiguities associated with that $100 billion a- annual commitment. If there were a way to say there's going to be a commitment of $100 billion U.S. dollars per year and it will be funded by taxes on this, that, and, and the other thing, um, I, I think that that could be very effective. The problem is um, is political. You would need to find items to tax or fees to be paid uh, that would make sense. For example, you, you mentioned shipping might be a, a source of, um, of carbon emission. Um, you also mentioned financial transactions in capital markets, which by themselves probably aren't a great source of, um, of pollution. Um, however, maybe you know certain types of financial transactions related to fossil fuel companies or other you know other um, other players in, in that market that that are, are responsible for for carbon emissions. Uh, those might uh, might be certainly accessible. But at the end of the day, the, the in terms of the developed nations, which would need to put together a scheme of taxes. I, I, I generally agreed upon one. I, I think um, the difficulty would be um, finding political support in their various governments. Mm, okay. So, Dr. Lauren Johnston, we still have uh, two to three minutes before we need to take a break here. I mean, developing or development of renewable energy is arguably an area where Chinese companies are leaders across the world today. So, in your opinion, what should be China's role in terms of promoting green finance globally? And by the way, how would you look at this kind of uh, criticism from the international community sometimes exists that, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative has uh, financed some polluting projects like coal-fired power plants in other developing countries? Um, China's role in developing green finance, both in terms of its industries at home and abroad, has been quite remarkable, in, especially in the area of hydroelectricity. China has a, a couple of very large and capable state-owned enterprises that are the world leaders in building very large hydro dams. And, for example, somewhere like Guinea, where which the capital Conakry didn't have stable electricity for decades. Now, so long as there's sufficient rain and so on, it, it has affordable electricity pretty regularly thanks to, this, thanks to a hydro dam built by China. So China has potential to play a very active role in building solar energy networks, in fostering hydro, even geothermal energy in Ethiopia and so on. Again, you come back to the the challenge of how does one finance that sustainably? And that, even before the green energy transition, was just the same for how do you finance non-green energy sustainably. So one reason the World Bank exited these large, large infrastructure projects was that it created some debt sustainability issues. Today, it's just a kind of a give and take. It's it's very hard to find Mm. a a safe macro context you need to have. Yeah, so Dr. Lauren Johnston, I'm sorry, I have to cut you here, but we have to take a short break. Uh, Coming back, our discussion will continue. Stay with us.
You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Today we are talking about a major summit held in the city of Paris, which has aimed to find financial solutions to some of the interconnected global challenges. For for example, poverty. Uh, that issue and climate change. Joining our panel, Dr. Lauren Johnston, associate professor with the China Studies Center, University of Sydney; Michael Powers, Zurich Insurance Group professor of risk and finance with Tsinghua University, as well as Dr. Jia Daojiang, professor of international political economy at Peking University. So, Dr. Lauren Johnston, before the break, you were making a point about. Uh, regarding that sustainability, I guess. So finish your point if you could. Yeah, just that it's. I mean, China. We were talking about China also. China has remarkable capacity to bring large-scale hydro projects, large-scale energy projects, making them affordable at the macroeconomic level. You know, it's such a big. Cost for what is unbelievably necessary, both in terms of green energy and in terms of energy at all. But it's just fundamentally hard, especially for small developing countries, to be able to take on that level of debt. So, whether there's some extra creative, I think Justin Lin calls for patient capital, which is basically debt with a very, very, very long maturity. Um, kind of period, so perhaps China has a has a bandwidth to explore patient capital in green finance in a very generous way, more than it has in the past, and then it could build on its experience without all those, without the scale of the macro risks that might exist without that idea of patient capital. Hmm. Yeah. I guess this is a learning process for China, and、uh, China is generally speaking pretty has been pretty quick to learn. So,、uh, Professor Jia,、uh, in addition to this uh, uh, shortfall in in terms of the green financing we have been talking about so far, another major issue that the summit in Paris has tried to、uh, address is really regarding this looming debt crisis facing the developing. Or facing the the low income economies because that servicing for developing countries is seen by many、um, economists to be at the highest level since the end of the 1990s.、Uh, in this regard, this particular summit in Paris has、uh, witnessed、uh, the the World Bank unveil a range of measures, including allowing countries hit by natural disasters to pause repayments on loans. And embedding some、uh, catastrophe insurance into new loans it will issue.、Uh, how much actual relief do you think this particular move by the World Bank is able to bring to low-income countries? Well, I have been tracking these developments, these international discussions,、uh, for quite some time,、mm. and that burden issue or that restructuring is not new at all. Yeah. Actually, during、uh, COVID 2021 ish,、uh, the under G20, there、yeah. was a、uh, developing country debt service suspension initiative that lasted for about two years and expired. And、uh, the at the spring meeting of the IMF World Bank this year, it was another major topic. And the Paris、uh, summit. Is really a continuation of it. As I mentioned earlier, this time around, the,、uh, I, I, we should actually thank we, meaning is,、uh, including China, perhaps, yeah, especially the borrowers.、Uh, those are in that discussion. Should thank the French and the Barbados for coming up with the packaging. It's climate change, it's green development. Otherwise, the meeting would be politically too difficult. For many of the other、uh, lenders, especially from the、uh, other Paris, Paris Club members, so that what I'm really trying to say is that、uh, it's a bit of a political play, should I say, or diplomatic play,、mm. to link that restructuring. Basically, we're talking about either postponing the repayment, or it hasn't really happened that much yet. 
reducing the principal or part of the interest on tax loan, it would be politically suicidal for any government to agree to do that. Mm. So this time around, I wouldn't really think the truly green development, be this energy, be anything else, or, or, or agriculture or shipping, as you mentioned earlier, be the real target. That's part of the, uh, I wouldn't say window dressing, but the needed political packaging. But the really thorny issue is what's called restructuring. Restructuring is a nice vocabulary. It's who would be, who, meaning among the creditors, would be willing to either postpone some of the payments, option one, two, offer new loans, three, yeah. uh, or forgive some of the old uh, money yeah. that's owed to the creditors. So these, <laughs> those are the real issues. Mm, yeah, a lot of real issues. And so, Professor Powers, apart from this um, political angle that uh, Dr. Jia Daojong has uh, mentioned, I mean, what about, say, some of the technical issues? For example, in terms of restructuring the debt burden faced by those troubled economies, low-income economies, some observers, and including some policymakers as well, are criticizing the approach of the International Monetary Fund. For example, the way that the, the IMF calculates a country's credit worthiness for being too complex and sometimes even inconsistent, which they say is delaying any, you know, agreements or solutions. Would you concur with this uh, criticism? Um, I, I won't say uh, I won't say completely yes or no. I, I would say certainly there 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 are complexities, and, and I, I acknowledge obviously there are inconsistencies in, in the way that um, that many of, of these uh, multilateral uh, banks um, uh, make make their decisions. However, I, I don't think that it really is possible to separate the politics from the, the, these technical issues that you just raised. Mm. Because what we have to keep in mind is that in, in terms of um, the, the, the funding that is coming from the developed nations, um, whatever the, the, the purpose, uh, in this case, we're focused primarily on global climate change, but there could be other things as well. Um, when, when, the, when there is funding coming through the, these uh, multilateral development banks um, and um, there is the possibility of loan forgiveness or restructuring of delays and so on, what we're really talking about is using the tools, the mechanics of the financial, the global financial system um, to provide subsidies. So there is money that is flowing and it's really, uh, it's really donations coming from the developed nations to the less developed nations, but it is being done through this, as, as you, you say, a very technically um, complicated system. Why do we have this? Well, we, it's not just pretense. It's not just because it makes everyone feel good. It's because the, the donor nations, the, the, the nations that are providing the funding, they want that funding to be used as effectively as possible. And one way to do that is to use the mechanisms of conventional finance, um, structuring a loan with a maturity date, with in interim interest payments, and so forth, So the, and with an assessment of risk um, up front, mm. um, so that there is some accountability on the part of the borrowing nation. Yeah. Now, I, I think that, that, as I said earlier, that can be implemented in a very inconsistent way, maybe a very unfair, maybe very inefficient, uh, but, but there's a purpose to it. And I think that um, probably the, those inconsistencies are not the biggest part of the problem that we're faced with right now. The biggest problem that we're faced with um, is, number one, that the, the developed nations have not really come forward with sufficient funding. Um, for for the problem of global climate change, and two that that the the World Bank, the IMF, the African Development Bank, uh, I, I think are too conservative in terms of their their lending policies across the board. Obviously, they have to identify which countries are greater risks, and 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 make decisions based upon that. But on an overall basis, the idea, for example, that the World Bank 
um, needs to be as restrictive as it currently is in order to maintain its so-called AAA rating, I think that it, it, that it could go much farther without putting that rating in danger. Hmm. Indeed. So, okay. So, in other words, Professor Powers, you are basically arguing there is a way for MDBs to be more involved in debt relief without losing their AAA rating. But, um, you know, there is a realistic issue, right? Because MDBs, um, um, because MDBs, they they are required to offer some concessional loans, and once they lose their AAA rating. I guess that's not in the interests of everybody, right? Because um, so well, I, I think yeah, yes, I think that's an argument that they would make, and that the supporters of their current policy would make. But but I don't think that they're in any danger of losing uh, the World Bank, in particular, of losing the AAA rating. I also don't think that uh, they would lose the ability to provide so-called concessional or low interest or. Uh, sort of very highly subsidized loans um, if they were to have a, a lower rating. The World Bank is backed by the strongest financial economies mm. on the planet. Um, no one is going to question the solvency of the World Bank unless some of the major developed nations start attacking it or decide that it's somehow not useful to them. So I, I really don't see that the, the, this type of uh, financial solvency issue is is a reason for them to be as risk averse in their um, lending as lending practices as they have been. I think what's really going on is that they they don't want to create you know further problems of moral hazard. That is, they don't want to be part of a. They don't want to loosen funds to such an extent that the borrowing nations feel that no matter what they do, they will never be held accountable. So I understand that that reluctance. But at the same time, I, I think that they could go further than they currently are. Mm, okay. So, Professor Jia, if we talk about the role of China, of course, now people would tell us that China is now the biggest bilateral creditor through its lending behaviors associated with the Belt and Road Initiative over the past um Decade or so, uh, the U.S. and some other Western countries, on a political front or on a sort of geopolitical front, have um, have been increasingly criticizing China recently for what they consider to be, you know, foot dragging in providing debt relief to low income countries. Do you think? Uh, how would you look at uh, these um, criticism? Uh, it's almost sometimes it's difficult to track. Uh, earlier, I mentioned about the issue of uh, statistics. Uh, China, I would say, to be more specific, uh, the Chinese Minister of Finance, China's Development Bank, the Action Bank, or the China Financial uh, Insurance Credit Agency, has done a rather poor job. They have done a poor job of publicizing precisely how much China has loaned. To the rest of the world, and uh, on what terms? This opens, in many ways, the floodgate uh, to the floodgate of criticism. And you know, a when you have a transaction of money between governments, uh, there is a different difference between what's called a credit. Uh, I mean, sovereign loan or non-sovereign loan. Uh, the uh, Asian Infrastructure Development Bank based in Beijing clearly differentiates that. So what's counted as sovereign on the Chinese side or what's counted as non-sovereign on the Chinese side? And on the borrower side, according to its domestic laws, its regulations may be fall into different categories. So without making this more complicated, the statement saying China is the biggest bilateral creditor has to be taken, uh, analyzed mm. with greater detail. Does it have a sovereign nature? Does it not? If not, then how is it resolved? And number one. Number two is that, okay, fine, let's accept the statement as factually true. But then it is, uh, there is a contrast over the past 20 years or so, the Paris Club countries, economies, we're talking about some of the re developed countries, 
the their bilateral credit uh, loans have been on a steady path of decline. And the point and that's the second point. The third point is that because they were in the Paris Club, they would tell a credit a, a borrower, a debtor, to say, well. You negotiate with you borrow from us individually, but in terms of repayment, you negotiate with with us as a group. Mm-hmm. If, you know, this is the so-called rules-based order. And the, what I'm really trying to say is that whether foot dragging or not, China is a in a club of its own. It suffers from a you know a bit of craziness in terms of the total number. Of Amount of loan, the sovereign nature of the loan, it also suffers from uh, being, let's say, uh, outside of the Paris Club, and then it's easy to be singled out. Okay, actually, regarding this、uh, G20 initiative that Professor Jia has mentioned about earlier, I think China made a lot of contribution on the Dutch initiative, right? China contributed to some more than sixty percent of the suspension, despite holding less than forty percent of the debt servicing claim. That's the report. That's the figure I read from a John Hopkins University's report, but I guess、uh, there's much more details for us to explore here. So, Dr. Lauren Johnston,、uh, what is your take on Beijing's、um, official position that multilateral development banks, as well as private lenders, should be more active in providing debt restructuring? For instance, how would you look at、uh, Chinese Premier Li Qiang's comment at this、uh, summit in Paris that China? Is ready to be engaged in debt relief efforts in a realistic, effective, and a comprehensive manner, in keeping with the principle of fair burden sharing.、Um, I think this area is incredibly complicated. I don't say that just to be dismissive. In the year two thousand and four, I worked in the debt management division of the Ministry of Finance of Guyana. Exactly when they reached completion point of the World Bank IMF heavily indebted poor country initiative and went to Paris to collect the fruits that had been agreed. So I worked on the data. I literally even wrote letters to creditors trying to to negotiate what would be the amount of debt relief. The issue between China and multilateral development banks is the assumptions of the Paris Club. Are that concessional lenders should take the lowest shave in a restructuring because they are not only lending on the most generous terms in the first instance, but what they do with the money they get paid back is then offer more of these public goods in terms of cheap loans and facilitating development. And the idea or the principle is that commercial lenders or More expensive lenders, in terms of policy banks charging a higher rate of interest and so on, shouldn't get the same discount when you have to restructure. So that's the principle which, in effect, China is disagreeing with in in terms of that hierarchy of how should debt relief be allocated.、Um, there's or who should which creditor should wear the cost of of the restructure. Most or, or least, and now you enter into the last kind of. At least when I was involved in that, China was present, but it wasn't a big creditor. Today, it's a much bigger creditor, though, as was noted. The exact nature of the credit is maybe less known by the outside world, but to be honest, it's probably known relatively well by the debt management division of any rel- any particular country.、Um, even post war Sierra Leone, with all of its Struggles and so on did have a very good debt management accounting system, even though lots of other factors just weren't well administered. That actually was because it was based on credit. So,、uh, and then I think China also believes that they don't. They really believe in extending the terms of a loan, not in writing it off. And there are actually economic studies which show if you give debt relief, this is on average the outcome. And whereas, if you give, if you restructure in terms of extending the maturity period or 
the non you know the repayment period or um the grace period if you extend the terms that the macroeconomic consequences of restructure are different so i get the impression that china and these traditional bretton woods multilateral institutions simply disagree on which of these macro outcomes is the ideal one um chinese lenders have entered into uh, on the one hand they're in a world of their own but once you get to a debt crisis then they're not then they're among all of these players searching for a way out and at that point the borrowing countries people's interests hopefully can somehow be put first but it's really just a slanging match between creditors so how countries can push china and britain woods organizations to cooperate um maybe this bridgetown initiative I, I i don't know how you change that i, I saw i saw the the ehipic debt relief right up close firsthand and even after all this work all this reform all these letters all these negotiations all these calculations the amount of relief actually didn't free up guyana to develop easily so even when all the criteria is met and most creditors are happy to give some relief in the end what they agreed wasn't that sufficient for guyana anyway mm. so there's no there's no easy way forward but the creditors need to come to some agreement nonetheless okay okay so professor michael powers I mean, China's、um, official position regarding debt relief is probably, at least from China's、uh, perspective, based on a legitimate ground. But there seems to be a real gap between、uh, the understanding on the part of the Chinese and the view of the Paris Club, whose membership is dominated by global North developed countries. So, realistically speaking, do you think it is possible for China? The Paris Club, as well as those lenders from the private sector, to reach a new consensus regarding debt management through opportunities provided by、uh, events like this particular summit in Paris. Yes, I, I, I think that there is. I, I think it's inevitable. Actually, I don't think that、um, it will happen overnight. I, I know that there. Um, there's a lack sometimes of goodwill among the parties. I think, as Professor Johnston said very clearly, to to a large extent, this is a matter of creditors fighting over the pie. Who's going to who's going to get the bigger share?、Um, the, the 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 there is a traditional, conventional,、um, established uh, approach uh, to handling this issue. There are these organizations that refer to themselves. Um, as concessional lenders, concessional、uh, concessional lender is simply one that's lending below、uh, market rates.、Uh, many of the loans that China has given、um, it, it, to the developing world are well below market rates in, in terms of interest rates and in terms of、uh, repayment repayment patterns. So I, I, I really it, it could be a matter of degree, and it's also a, a matter of definitions. What's happened is that China has emerged as a new figure on this conventional landscape, and the older players, the the ones that have set the rules and are very comfortable with them, don't like、uh, the fact that there is this new player who is calling out some of the conventional assumptions. So one of one of the conventional assumptions is that、uh, the World Bank, the IMF, the African Development Bank, they should Uh, they should receive payments first. They should not be involved in restructuring.、Um, they have this argument that they need to protect their、uh, their, their their rating, their AAA rating, or, or, or and,、mm. and so forth.、Uh, these are all things that、uh, sound very good and, and convincing. But when you look at the fact that China is also making loans、uh, below market rates, that China is also a major player, and sometimes. Um, in some countries, may even have a bigger share、um, uh, of the the, the debt.、Um, I, I think that it, it's quite、um, it, it's quite incumbent upon them to recognize that the rules need to be adjusted. And I think that、um, certainly the, the the concept that there should be a sharing of the burden、um, of of funding 
um, that which is what China's argument arguing is a very reasonable argument to make. Hmm. Okay. So, Professor Jia,、um, regardless, I mean, be it、um, climate challenge or be it. Uh, the the discussion regarding the debt restructuring or debt relief targeting low income countries. I mean, over the years, countries in the global south have heard many many pledges from the wealthy club without follow up actions. Ahead of the summit in Paris, there were concerns that this meeting would be yet another summit without specific actions and measures. In your、um, observation of the event, has that really been the case? Well, we need to. <clears throat> these things,、uh, developments, are very difficult to、uh, keep track of. The devil is in the detail.、Mm. On the one hand, you know, today we are talking about Zambia. Before it was Ghana, Sri Lanka, Chad. Yeah. And back in the eighties was probably Mexico, Brazil, Argentina. These names come up, <clears throat> but when you are in the shoes of the、uh, debtor government, you would it would be nice to have what's called a haircut. Basically, means whoever it is, one of the creditors would forgive part of the loan or part of the repayment. But that has been very difficult. As <clears throat> earlier, you、uh, you discussed with uh, uh, the other two discussants. But then, what the real、uh, let's say shot in the arm for the moment, for example, for Zambia, it got an agreement to start negotiating towards some sort of restructuring. We don't know the details to be、uh, to be specified. That's a shot in the arm because. It helps Zambia to、uh, project its position in the private market. Zambia's credit rating, basically,、uh, it wouldn't wouldn't be going down the drain. At the same time, it could help Zambia attract, you know, inflow、yeah. of foreign direct investment.、So、who knows? Yeah. So thank you very much.、Uh, a lot of wisdom. From、uh, all three of our guests, Dr. Lauren Johnston, Dr. Michael Powers, as well as Professor Jia Daojong, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai. The center of China's top leadership in Beijing, Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hardworking person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. 